Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks, all of whom have made the decision to look at their relationship with alcohol and take steps towards a positive change. My guests are all at different points in their journey, but all have powerful and uplifting stories to share. And that's why I hope you find each episode a valuable source of inspiration and insight. My sponsors for season three of One for the Road are the amazing Rock Sober, a brand established in 2017 and led by brothers Sean and Lee, who are both in recovery and on a shared mission to inspire and support recovering addicts worldwide. Injecting rock and roll into sobriety, Rock Sober offers merchandise and accessories to inspire and empower its community of sober badasses. The boys have recently launched a new range of alcohol-free beers which are taking the market by storm. Every beer purchased will help Rock Sober on their mission to support and inspire more people in recovery. Their message is clear. You don't need alcohol to have a good time. So let's all rock sober and remember the good times with Rock Sober AF Drinks. My guest today on One for the Road is a complete legend of a man. He used alcohol as a method of coping for many years until his addiction and trauma collided, which created the biggest shift in his life. This led on to him helping thousands of others as the self-development coach. Before I introduce him properly, I also wanted to thank you for supporting me on season four of One for the Road. It has gone from strength to strength, regularly appearing in the top 10 of the Apple charts. Don't worry, season five is well on its way and I cannot wait. So without further ado, please welcome this week's special guest, Mr. Johnny Lawrence. So Johnny, welcome to my podcast, One for the Road. I feel really privileged that you've come on today as a guest. We um, spoke on one of my lives during my Dry January campaign and your story blew me away and I really felt that it would be amazing for people that listen to my podcast to hear your story. So thank you so much for joining me. And how are you today, mate? I'm great, actually. I really am. We're doing this nice and early, which is the best time for me and I, I gather for you as well. Yeah, <laughs> and the conversations we've had. Yeah, you did. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was sick, so you got me on that one. But you say it's a privilege to have have me on, Dave. It's an absolute privilege to be here, mate. I mean, you know, you know, I'll, I won't go too far with it, but you know how special you are to me, mate. So I'm really grateful for this time. First of all, to spend time with you again. And second of all, to be on your fabulous podcast. So thank you. Oh, that means a lot, mate. And it feels like we've known each other for 10 years, right? <laughs> it does, mate. It really does. Yeah, <laughs> it does. Uh, and that's because we're aligned in so many things that we do now and also our journeys, you know, and uh, that's where I'd love to start. Actually, I always like to go back to the beginning. Mm. Um, I'd really love to hear about what it was like for you growing up. I was born in Islington, believe it or not. And uh, 
I was born into uh, my mother, who was uh, white British, and my father, who was native Nigerian, moved over to the UK to become a pharmacist. And uh, they met and they got together and, and they had me. Um, not sure if it was planned, got an inkling it wasn't, <laughs> but there you go. And uh, before we knew it, we were living in Hertfordshire. And um, my story really is one of, I've come to realise rejection. It starts as rejection. And, and what that means is, is obviously, as I sit here, you, you realise that I'm a mixed race man, you know, and I've, I've alluded to that with the black African and the white British. And the thing is, when you grow up in the 80s, that wasn't, that was something that sort of struck fear in people, I think, uh, on reflection and on hindsight. And people didn't know what to do with that. You wasn't one or wasn't the other. And there was, you know, how things were quite elevated around that time when it came to race. And um, what I found was I was rejected by by white people and I was rejected by black people. Um, some of the rejection I experienced was my mother getting spat on in the queue of the post office because uh, I remember it and you know, I was very young. She got spat on um, and she was told that she was disgusting because she was in a mixed race relationship. And I, I remember having sitting there looking at my mother with, with someone else's saliva running down her face. And, uh, you know, what do you do with that at such a young age? It's just, it's just very difficult. Getting kicked out of Cubs. I was the only black kid there or mixed race kid there. Every time anything happened, you know, I was bullied quite horrendously in Cubs and I, you know, eventually stuck up for myself and that was what they picked on <laughs> and they kicked me out. Um, so it's stuff like that. You start to realise that you don't fit in in the world, you know. And then when it came to being around black people, the black culture as such wasn't particularly prevalent in my life. So there was a lot of not understanding things, a lot of trying to play catch up, a lot of pretending. And uh, that was confusing. That was difficult uh, for me. So I was rejected from a race perspective. And then at school, we were a very low income family, didn't have any money. So needless to say, I was undernourished. So <laughs> as to say, I wasn't getting picked for football. <laughs> so I, I often felt rejected in sports at school. But then, uh, you know, I come to find out when I'm 30 years old, that I was also dyslexic. So I struggled academically too. So there was a real feeling of, of rejection at school as well. I wasn't athletic, I wasn't academic. Um, if, you, if you're neither of those things at school, then it's going to be tough, right? But the, the big one for me was, um, was my home life. Unfortunately, uh, I'm a witness to domestic violence and uh, a survivor of very physical child abuse. And um, it affected every part of my life. The abuser was my father. I had to, I had to witness him do some, some pretty horrendous things. And, and people latch on a lot to the physical side of things. Um, and, and that's right. You know, it was horrible watching him hurt, other, hurt my mother, watching him hurt my my siblings um that was uh, that was that was awful and obviously getting hit myself and i know that it sounds strange maybe if you don't understand domestic violence or gratefully you haven't experienced it but you know you do get hardened to it you do and you know you do end up sort of just taking it on the chin if you will um but some of the things i had to witness um and uh, i've never really spoken about some of the actual incidences before but I remember there being one where my mum used to go to these these things called a clothes party back in the day. Mm. Uh, and, she, and she used to she used to love it. She never used to go out very much. And it was always funny to me because I'd come downstairs and she'd have makeup on and I'd be like, what's that? <laughs> Cause, <laughs> yeah, because she like never, ever wore makeup or anything. So I'd be really happy for her that she's going out. But for some reason, my, my dad didn't like it. Yeah. Um, and then one day she gets back. I, I mean, I, I again, I was so young, I don't know, but. I remember him her getting back like late. It must have been late in his uh, in his definition. 
And uh, there was a big shouting match downstairs and then things started, sat big, you know, loud things started to happen and, and, and violence ensued and, and me and my sister were, were in bed and then it's quieting down. Uh, we fell asleep, but we were woken up in the middle of the night to my mother running around the bed, getting swung up with a bat. Um, it missed her, hit me. And then before we know it, um, we're up at the top of the road um, where my mum had a friend who she'd often go to if things got really rough. And it turned out he had thrown her out when she got back into the street and she had smashed the back door window and, and came into the house and she crept upstairs to get us. He'd caught her and tried to assault her with a bat. Obviously, I, as a kid, I was there trying to tell the policeman that I'd been hit. Mm. <laughs> uh, I don't think the policeman was overly focused on that at that time. But the difficult bit to understand there is, is that domestic violence was such a tricky thing to deal with back then. Police officers couldn't do what they can do now. Um, they almost couldn't get involved, to it, no matter what it looked like. Um, and again, uh, I was so young when this happened. This is just what I'm learning as an adult because I grew up very confused. You know, police are supposed to help, but they didn't help. Why didn't they help? And my mum had two older brothers that, that eventually put a stop to it um, uh, to a degree. Um, it never goes away. There's, there's certain things that happen behind the curtains that, that, that just never go away, certain ways of being. But as I say, the physical violence was, was, quite, was quite bad, very bad. Uh, and that's the thing I've learned through therapy. I, I downplay it because what I see is the face expression I, I'm sort of seeing on you, Dave, is that it, it makes people uncomfortable. But, and that's why people don't talk about these things. But I realized that, you know what? Unfortunately, I'm not alone. That actually a large amount of the generation that I grew up suffered with levels of violence. And yes, it's degrees, it's a sliding scale. But nonetheless, it's violence is violence and people just accept that as their past. But that's, that's not okay because that does affect every part of your life, every part of your life, every relationship, every job, every, every, every way that you look at yourself and others. But as I said, the physical violence was, was bad, but it was the psychological stuff that stays with you that causes the PTSD and, 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 and all that sort of stuff. And it was the stuff that I've alluded to uh, on the live where he would tell me he was going to hurt me, but not tell me when. And then he would forget, maybe, I don't know. And I'd hear him get up in the night to go to the toilet and I would wet the bed because I'd be terrified that he was going to come and hurt me. And then there was other things like, um, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm going to hurt your brother, you know, um, locking us in our rooms. Um, not, you know, we're kids. We don't know when we're going to get out of our rooms. We're scared, you know. And this is all stuff that I come to appreciate the impact of it. And, and that came from a therapy session because um, as I moved through my life, again, alluded to it on the live, there was an incident at my house. And, and I often say it's not my story to tell fully because there were others involved. And my, the rest of my family, my siblings, they, they, don't, they choose not to talk about this stuff. And I've, I've seen things happen within their life that to me, as someone who is now educated in this space, I, I know what's happening. Um, but you can't tell somebody stuff that they're not ready to hear because that can be very dangerous. And when they are ready to hear it or they are ready to talk about it, they know I'm there and I've tried, but it's difficult and it's heartbreaking actually when you love your family and you can see they're in pain, but they don't know they're in pain and you don't want to tell them they're in pain. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it, it's a tricky situation, but um, yeah, there was an incident in, in the living room. I, I came home from school one day and my mother was cradling my, my brother. And my dad was uh, attacking them both with a slipper. And uh, I walked in and I was just like, that's enough. Something happened in me. I was getting bigger. I was getting a bit yeah. stronger. And I just launched at him. I, I don't know why. <laughs> I, I was, certainly wasn't trying to be the big lad or anything. I was just, I was just had enough. It was my breaking yeah. point. 
And I grabbed him and I yanked him away and threw him across the room, like with every ounce of energy and strength that I had. Yeah. And uh, he turned and he looked at me and I'm being honest with you, Dave, I absolutely crapped myself. I was like, yeah. oh, what did I just do? Um, and I stood there, but I put my hands up. I was ready. Let's go. And he just walked up to me and he just laughed at me. He just laughed in my face. And then he just turned around and walked away. And again, the mind games, I yeah. didn't know what to do with that. Like, what do I do with that? You know? It's so exciting, isn't it? Well, it is. It is. Yes, you're right. It absolutely is. And, uh, you know, me and my mum started talking. I mean, I was, I was the parent to my mum for a long time. And I don't mean that in a derogatory term. My mum was doing her best, but, you know, she had four kids and a violent husband and no money. And, and just, you know, it must have been very difficult for her. And, uh, you know, I remember helping her out with debt, um, helping her out by getting jobs. Me and my mum used to go and we used to do like three or four cleaning jobs in the evening together, you know, because uh, she used to do a cleaning job in a factory and, uh, sorry, an office. And uh, then one day someone broke in. So I didn't like that. So <laughs> I went and, and helped her out. And uh, I come to realise that that means that I, I missed aspects of my childhood working at eight years old, <laughs> you know, and, and stuff like that. But uh, it's all right because... Uh, it taught me a, a fantastic work ethic, but we had conversations after that incident. And I realized that, uh, you know what, this is not good. You know, I'm getting bigger. I'm not going to part with this. And my, my mum's words, she said, I'm just worried, Johnny, that one day you're going to kill him. And I, and I don't want that for you. Uh, so we, we put our heads down and, and I managed to get myself a council flat, uh, in, in not a great area of, of where we lived, but, at that point i you know it didn't matter really yeah Yeah, it didn't didn't matter but you know although my household my family home was like that when i moved out i experienced loneliness for the first time when you're used to noise when you're used to a a busy house almost sorry chaos almost yeah i was used to that chaos and and it's something i i I talk about a lot you know sometimes the familiar provides comfort even if it's not good for you yeah and when it's, it's, it's the reason why a lot of times in, in domestic violence situations that the, that people, people can't leave their partners because yeah. it's what they know, whether they realize it or not, there's a comfort to that, that they just can't leave because the fear of the unknown is the anxiety of the future. And that, that, that there cause fear. So they're actually yeah. more scared of not knowing what's going to happen than they are of actually what is happening. So I move out, I experience loneliness. And then, uh, that's when I met my, uh, my best friend of 20 years, which was, which was alcohol. And, uh, I, I drunk alcohol to, uh, have company basically. <laughs> uh, I, I was lonely. I was in my flat on my own. I was 16 coming up 17 years old and, uh, I didn't have a bloody clue. I didn't have a clue, man. I didn't even know at that age, to be honest, Dave, that you had to pay for water. <laughs> it was such a, it was about such an injustice when I realized there was such a thing as paying for water. I was like, what? <laughs> but yeah. you know, we, we had, we had a, I, I had a, um, a gas and electricity meter. And uh, I've told a story before. It was a, a real charming story of, of like, it wasn't long after that, that um, I don't, I wouldn't say I was, I was ever really suicidal or anything like that, but there were times when I moved out where I just wasn't sure how I was going to move forward. I had three or four jobs. I was working in the morning, bringing the papers in at, at WH Smith. And then I had a couple of bar jobs through the day. And then I used to work in, um, I think it was Netto's, yeah, it was Netto's, um, um, bringing in, uh, doing sh- shelf stacking in the evening. And, uh, you know, I rotated through these sort of four jobs and uh, I was tired. And you know what? I had all these jobs and I didn't have any money. Mm. <laughs> and I remember once walking back from, from my job 
and I was crying uncontrollably crying I couldn't stop I was just like so done and uh, I didn't have any money for gas and I knew that I wasn't going to be able to cook or stay warm or any of those things and I was thinking what what the hell do you want from me life like (laughs) what do you want from me what could I do here I'm working four jobs I ain't got no more time you know and then uh I was really, really in a bad way and I was contemplating um, giving up. I can't say I know what that means. I just just had had enough. I was tired and I was just defeated. And uh, I walked around the corner and this is the truth as well, Dave. There was 20 quid on the floor. Couldn't believe it. I actually couldn't believe it. I, it was 20 quid on the floor and I looked around and, and there's nobody there. And I put it in my pocket and I got home and I was happy, but I still didn't have no gas. <laughs> so I couldn't cook nothing and I was still cold. But the next day, it was all good, you know. Uh, well, I was cooking and uh, and I was warm, you know. And that's when I realised that you know what, like things always get better, right? You know, they have to get better. You have to hang in there because the way I look at it is that if I'd given up, that could have been like the moment before I find twenty quid, right? Oh, it's amazing, isn't it? The you know timing, I mean? the yeah. timing of that. Yeah, yeah. it goes to show in life things happen out of the blue. And it can change your whole direction, can't it? But that's it. You know, that, that, that feeling there, right? Imagine I had just given up yeah. and then I hadn't walked around that corner and found that 20 quid. And this is what people don't realise. It's like you don't know what's coming. Yeah. You think you do and you start to play it forward and you think, oh, this is the way things are going to go for me. Nah, th- that's not always the case. Sometimes you're thinking about giving up you walk around the corner and there's bloody 20 quid on the floor, Dave. Yeah, that's probably <laughs> that's a lot of money back then as well. Oh, yeah. It's a lot of money now. <laughs> you know, but I just, you know, it taught me something. It taught me never give up. Yeah. Never give up because you just don't know. You just yeah. don't know what's going to happen when you walk around that corner. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and, and it does suck sometimes, you know. It really does. Life is hard. It's really hard. But it's those experiences in life that is life. <laughs> that's life you know it's like everything that you've been through Dave the, your incredible story all your experiences all the things and feelings and regrets and all these things you have have led you to help the people that you help now yeah the amount of times you know when we did our live the amount of my mates that were like that guy's amazing and they now follow you you know and they're quietly sober curious you can tell yeah, they're there in the background it really plants to say these stories and that's why I wanted to get you on because like from your childhood, it, everything's been tough for you up until yeah. now, you know. And as you said, that's given you an amazing work ethic, but it's also built incredible resilience in you as well. So yeah. how bad did your drinking get then at this point? It wasn't that bad at the beginning. You didn't it have was, the money, I suppose. No, I didn't. No, you know, I didn't. But like, you know, I'd, what would happen is that I'd have a lot of friends over, you know, yeah. and they would leave alcohol behind and, I, and I'd drink it whether I liked it or not. Yeah, you know, and uh, and it just started getting uh, like like you've said before, you know, when once when she start realizing that alcohol is something that helps or feels like it helps, you start lowering the bar, don't you? You know, you you want to drink, you want to drink the Stella maybe, but you can't afford the Stella and it doesn't do it quick enough. So that's yeah. when you start switching it up and you start finding things that that get you there a bit quicker. Cider, yeah, I went for it all, just like just like you did, like people do. But you know, I, I I've been. I've I've had I haven't had many sort of relationships in my life like like partners and stuff. Um, I just I, I that's part of my trauma. I I'm not able to I wasn't able to really be in relationships very well. Um, it wasn't something that I found easy. Um, I didn't I don't trust people, you know. But I um, say that actually was that a trust thing? 
Yeah, yeah, it, it was a trust thing. I found it really hard. And it's like one of those things, like if you don't trust somebody and you're looking for things to not trust, you will yeah. find those things yeah. eventually because nobody's perfect and you will amplify them, if not only to confirm that you can't trust people. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like a vicious circle. Like no one can win, you know? They just so can't. true. It's so true. Um, yeah. I, I was the same, mate. Like my mum left me um when i was 14 and it took me until i met m to finally trust someone because it, it's almost like i look for, as you say you amplify it so any little sign and that came across as me being really possessive mm. i was highly insecure yeah uh, and it was the slightest thing that i i mean i'm an overthinker i'm highly sensitive as well so that adds into the mix yeah you know so amplified is the perfect word actually because everything was so much bigger in my head than it was mm. for everyone else it's like what are you worrying about what, what you know and it's like actually well this and it was a um, painful existence actually to to live like that well, I, I have this belief that trauma in, in any shape or form no matter how it manifests in your life is like somebody that takes over the volume switch and has has control over individual aspects of of the treble or the or the bass or yeah. or the or whatever and they just turn certain things up to to 10 you know so there's certain things that most people have but our trauma certain things like like trust just gets whacked up to 10 you know so now all of a sudden we we, we don't trust anybody and, and 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 the person really no matter how lovely lovely they are doesn't stand a chance we are invested we are committed to finding flaws with people. Yeah. It's <laughs> almost know? like obsessed. And do you know yeah. what? What's interesting about that is alcohol use helps to turn that volume down. Yeah. Or the more you drink, it actually turns you up to 20. Yeah. Because initially it's like, oh, I feel calm. I feel, yeah, I don't really have to. I'm overthinking it and whatever. But yeah. then after three, four, it's actually getting whacked right up. And then you start obsessively thinking and reacting and yeah yeah you're absolutely right but i mean one of the things that was that that like when i started to connect the dots with alcohol and trauma was um my, my first therapy session and uh i remember i i never brought alcohol into the room with her I, 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 to me it wasn't a problem to me it was it was a fix it was something that was helping so i was like oh, i'm not gonna and i was protecting it and it's it's the first time ever it's like i always say to people about alcohol it's like there's an elephant in the room wearing a lampshade telling you it's a lamp. And you're like, yep, okay, you're a lamp. You know it's an elephant, <laughs> but you yeah. don't want it to be an, an elephant. You want it to be a lamp. So you just say you're a lamp. Yeah. But I, I remember telling her some of my childhood experiences and, and I downplayed them for years and years and years to the point where like, I almost sort of thought, hey, it wasn't that bad. And I remember telling her a particular story and she asked me if I could stop for a minute. And I was just like, okay. Because I've always had this ability to tell the stories very matter-of-factly. And she says, uh, you know, it's like you're talking about somebody else. And I was just like, okay. You know, and she was just like, um, I just need a minute. And she left the room. I found out later she left the room because she, she was crying. She was upset. She, she found it difficult to hear. Because I'm quite a descriptive speaker, I come to find. <laughs> so when I, when I describe stuff, I suppose it, 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 it does have impact. But um, she comes back in and she says, I, I'd like to tell you what you just told me. And she said it back to me. And it was the first time I heard it. Like, even though I'd said it a few times, maybe even joked about it. Oh, yeah. my dad, give me an ass kick and all that sort of yeah. stuff. I'd never really heard it. And I was just like, Phew. and I just something like started rising in me. And I couldn't wait to get out of the room. 
I was like, I'm, I'm done. I need to leave right now. And she was just like, okay. Okay. And she did her care bit made sure I was, I was okay, but I got home and this was the weird bit, right? I, I walked into my house and there's my wife. And she's like, looks at me. She's like, you okay. You know? And I said, uh, no. Uh, and I'd run upstairs because uh, I don't, I didn't at that time. Like people seeing me cry. That's a thing that uh, turns out comes back to my, my dad used to, used to just to hit you until you cried and it was like a reward so i stopped crying <laughs> it's like my control thing you know it wasn't a masculine thing it wasn't oh i'm a man i'm not crying and yeah. like that. it was it was a it was a control thing but i couldn't help it and i remember looking at my wife and saying to her i was crying on her lap and she was she was stroking my head and she said to me like it's all right i got you sort of thing and i was like i can't believe this is about my dad <laughs> and i remember her looking at me going really <laughs> Like really, you know, because I never spoke about it, but there would be times I remember us on holiday sitting on the balcony in Mallorca and I'd drink a little bit too much and I'd start talking about it. And she had slowly over the years started hearing about stuff. And again, alcohol was involved. You know, I was talking about it. It loosened me up. It got me thinking, it opened my mind up. And over the years, she'd she'd worked it out what had happened, and she'd heard stories. And the funny thing is, I never even realized I told her the stories because I was I was drunk, I was drinking, you know. So yeah, it's it's amazing. Like, even though it's quite obvious in some ways that alcohol is destroying aspects of you, you will still aggressively protect it, won't you? You know, it's your best mate. It's the one thing you can't do without. I tried everything. I remember going for a period a little bit before I gave up where I was going gluten-free. <laughs> I was going dairy-free. I was taking vitamins and training and doing all these things, trying to feel better. But I didn't even think about alcohol. Didn't even get on my radar. I just just carried on doing it you know it's amazing how you can uh how you can trick yourself that way it's amazing you say like the way we describe alcohol as your best friend because mm. when you stop you realize it's your worst enemy right like it lures you in and that's how i always describe it as your mistress you know i, I, I made that but you know how much that resonates with me My yeah goodness. Yeah, because like you, you wake up in the morning, you regret everything you've done and the deceit and God, have I got away with that and whatever. But by the afternoon, they're texting you, come on, Johnny, last night was amazing. Let's do it again. And you know, it's wrong, mm. but the temptation's too much. So you go and do it again. And then the next morning, you know, and it, and it's an awful cycle. So what, what happened after that, mate? By the way, your wife sounds absolutely amazing. Oh man, uh, it's funny. I, I don't. I, I'm very much in check of my emotions, but when it comes to my wife, like um, someone, somebody loves me out there to give me my wife. She's a uh, oh, that's lovely, dude. She's put up. I mean, you know, she's put up with some stuff, man. I don't know how the hell I'm still got her. To be honest, <laughs> you love though, mate. She seems beneath all that bravado. Do you know what I mean? It was like, yeah. she she always said, "There's so much more to you than what you you're seeing in the world." You know, yeah. and she she stood by me. At, you know, I mean, I've never been physically violent, but I've sworn at her. I've called her names yeah. and not remembered it the next day. And she ended up emailing me. So, and weirdly enough, it, it hit home a lot more than like a text or a WhatsApp. Yeah. It was like, oh, why is Emma emailing me? And Dave, this is what you, you said last night. And yeah. it really sunk into me, you know. Because yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a change of behavior, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's something that's striking. It's, someone does the same thing every day, he kind of men- messages into the background. But like you said, exactly then, as soon as you get an email, you're like, whoa, what, wait, this is weird. Why is this happening? Yeah. All of a sudden, everything, again, all that, all them volume switches start going up, don't they? But uh, I think 
the bit that the, the crux of it, the real realization that, wait a minute, alcohol might not be my friend was um, like, I've alluded now to the trauma of my past, my father. It was when I became a father. That for me was, was the big shift. That was the bit, but I didn't initially handle it quite the way it seems. I, I, uh, I lost it. Basically. I, I became unraveled in a, in a, in a big time way. And what that means is, you know, we, we moved away from my, my hometown of, of Hitchin in Hertfordshire. And, um, we decided to, we were, we were looking to move to Cornwall at one point, um, uh, sorry, uh, to Australia at one point, And we ended up moving to Cornwall because um, it was a heck of a lot closer, frankly. Yeah. Uh, Carol, Caroline had surf there. So. <laughs> yeah, well, they, we, uh, Caroline had family in Australia. So it was, it was a plausible thing. Um, and at the time, I think I was, I was looking to run away as far away as I could, you know, and I think that was what was driving me. But I think as always, Caroline dialed it back a bit for me. My wife, Caroline, dialed it back for me. It was like, wait, you know, <laughs> that's quite far away, <laughs> you know, and all that sort of stuff. But uh, we moved to Cornwall and we decided we were going to start a family and we got settled. We got jobs, all that sort of stuff. And then we fell pregnant, like really quite quickly. Um, that's what happens when you've got six weeks to you start your job. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you end up finding yourself pregnant. Uh, so we had, uh, we, we, we were going through the pregnancy and we joined all them baby groups and whatnot. And uh, made a whole bunch of friends. And one by one, we were all having children. And the excitement was amazing. Like, we were really looking forward to having a baby and starting this chapter. And everything felt right. I was away from my family for, for 360 miles away here in Cornwall. And uh, we just felt like we had that freedom to be who we wanted, for me to step into a different role in life instead of just being that person that I'd always been. And uh, I was excited about it all. I made this pact with myself. I was going to be the best dad and I wasn't going to do these things that you know, my dad had done at all. And I, obviously, I think, obviously, I was never going to be violent, but it was the other stuff as well. Like, the, you know, the trauma, the, the problems with relationships, I'd convinced myself I was going to be different. And then um, we got to the point where Caroline was, was having a baby. Um, we, we were going into hospital and, and she did have a, a quite a traumatic uh, child uh, birth it wasn't wasn't easy at all there were lots of issues here and there and uh it was it was quite it was quite difficult and I think as a as a partner and, and it's not to take anything away from my wife who was going actually going through it as a partner you're you're terrified you're you're, you're worried that you're going to lose one or both you know and uh I got to watch her give birth um which was just incredible uh I even get goosebumps now thinking about it just watching her go through something like that just thinking oh my god you're the most amazing person I've ever seen like how the heck you know could you could you go through that and then the baby comes out and I cut the umbilical cord is my my son and and I hold my son in in my hands and I look down and there's this overwhelming feeling of love and just oh my god this is the most amazing moment but unfortunately at the same time I was hit with something else and that was this this pain that I can't describe and let me make it clear you know you know it's possible one day that my son will hear this so I want to make it clear like that the initial feeling was love and 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 an overwhelming amount of love and and nothing can take away from that moment but at the same time there was that pain and what that pain was all of a sudden I've been given a different context a different perspective that wait I love this little human with everything in my life and I, and I, and I will do everything I can to protect him. I will do everything. I'm going to be the best dad. Surely my dad felt that he must've felt that at some point, yeah. but if he felt that, then why did he do this? And why did he yeah. do that? And it was just like a moment of like, I, I couldn't make sense of it. Like I'd never, I never knew what it was to be a dad. I didn't have a clue, you know, <laughs> and then all of a sudden I do. And I'm there going to myself, wait, um, 
uh, uh, well, yeah. just malfunction, shutdown. And the, the hard thing about that was, was that I was needed. Being a parent is really hard. My wife had just been through labor. She needed me. And there I was all up in my head, having a bit of a meltdown. And that's when the alcohol amplified. It, it ramped up. And I was great, you know, for a bit. And then I wasn't. <laughs> and it started to fall to bits. And this went on for a really long time, you know, best part of a decade. You know, I'd be up and down, up and down. And that's why that conversation that you have with your partner, your wife, where you, you spoke about the promises and the broken promises and the the cycles of, of that behavior. And it just resonated because that's what I was doing. I, in my heart of hearts, I'm a good person and I wanted to be better and I wanted to be there. I just didn't know how. I just didn't know how, you know. And And it's a vicious cycle because you make these promises, you break these promises. You make these promises, you break these promises, and you live in this perpetual cycle of shame, regret, um, hope, shame, regret, hope, you know, just going round and round in a circle. And it's draining, it's tiring, and it's it's wearing. And I, I can't say I had the feeling, but you can tell, you can understand even why people have the inclination to give up because it's, it's, it's just knackering. Mm. It's just tiring existence, you know? When, when you said you had this... Um like light bulb moment about your dad when your son was born yeah. and then you said you're drinking amplified. What did you do with those feelings then? Did you just bury them behind the drink? Because you said it went on for a decade. Did yeah, you just push it, to, push it to the back and think, well, I can't handle that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I've always ha- had exercise in my life. You know, when I, when I was a teenager, I found, I found boxing then wrestling. And that was always a thing for me, um, getting my aggression out. I often thought it was weird because like, um, I'm not really an aggressive person, but you know, when I speak to therapists or whatever, they're like, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> like yeah. you were, you've always been, whether you like it or not, you were always very comfortable around violence, you know? So it does make sense. But, um, I used to, I, I, I started picking that back up again here and there, a little bit of boxing here and there, but then I got into the weights quite substantially. And I think, I think the combination of the weights and the alcohol was a bit of a leveler. And when I say a leveler, I don't mean it was helping. I mean, it enabled me to exist, you know, enabled me to keep going time after time. But for me, it wasn't until around lockdown. And I think that's what, that's what fired a lot of people up, wasn't it? And I thought to myself, I actually got really, really scared. And this is why I thought, wow, the only reason I don't drink in a week is because I've got to go to work. Yeah. What the hell am I going to do now? And I was terrified. I was like, I'm not going to make it. I won't make it. No, I can't drink like that every night. Like, yeah. And this is the thing about alcohol, right? Is that it felt like a job. It felt like an obligation. It, it, I didn't feel there was an option to not drink. I felt like I had to, you know? I now know that that's not the case. But at the time, I didn't know that. So I was like, how am I going to do this? Like, yeah. <laughs> never at any point did I think, oh, I don't have to do this. I just thought, how am I going to do this? What am I going to do? How am I going to? And the thing is, like, there's so much mind chatter going in, going on with someone who has issues with trauma and issues with alcohol. You've got a, a, a horrendous amount of people chatting to you in your head at all times. You haven't got room for it, for the actual real people in your life. <laughs> you know, they're bothering you because there's so much going on in your head. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And um, I remember ringing up uh, a therapist number um, again, as these things happen uh, through chance. And um, I spoke to this guy named Maliki Dunn. And this guy saved my life, I think. I honestly do. I saw him every day for two weeks at the beginning. And we went deep. And um, 
I didn't bring up alcohol once in that two weeks. Not once. <laughs> not, not once. I, I wasn't doing it, you know. And I did trust him at first, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. But the great thing is, is that every therapist I'd ever been in the room with, apart from the first one and Maliki, eventually I'd intellectualized my, uh, my trauma to such a degree that I'd become quite cerebral myself. And I was able to basically work the therapist. Yeah. Before I knew it, the therapist was telling me their problems and crying. You know? <laughs> you know? And I and I remember sitting with Maliki and I remember saying to I remember sitting there thinking to myself, okay, he's touching on something I don't like. I'm going to navigate the conversation away. And he stopped me and he said, you know what? I know there's this little game you want to play with me. And he said, then you want to direct me away from all this stuff. And, and you can do that if you want to. He said, but I just want you to know that I'm not going to play that game. He saw through it, didn't he? He saw right through it. And I went, whoa. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. And all of a sudden, like, I didn't feel like I had any power in the room, which yeah. is where which is where you should be when you're in yeah. a therapy session. You know, yeah. not powerless, but you you should never feel like you're running the session. That's not good. Manipulating it as yeah. minutes ago, and uh, it wasn't long after that that the respect started building. And uh, I remember one day mentioning alcohol, and then a little while later mentioning it again. It was like I was drip feeding him information, but he was picking up on it. Little did I know he had a history of addiction. And he looked at me one day and he said, I can't believe this. He goes, I can't believe that this is, this is one of the problems that you have. And he looked at me square in the eyes and he said, I want you to know that I can help you with this. And I just thought, whoa. <laughs> and, and, and then he said to me, because I, I said to him one session, like, you know, I just want to know why do I drink? And he's not a big lover of the word why. And he, he goes on to explain that, but that's another thing I expect. And he said, look, it's this simple. If you want to know why you drink, stop drinking. And I was like, oh, and that's, that's it. Amazing, isn't it? That's yeah, it. It's like, and this is what I love about the guy, right? He has this inept way of like taking something that feels complicated and layered and difficult and just hitting it with a simplified, just simplifying it down into one sentence, taking away, you know, like I've said to you before, like we take a feeling and we think it into a problem. Well, this is what we do all the time. And he goes, whoa, 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 whoa. let's go back to the feeling. Let's go back to the feeling, yeah? yeah? The feeling is, you're not sure why you drink. Stop drinking. You'll find out. And boy, was he right. <laughs> and, and I remember, like, you know, I said on the, on, the, on the live, you know, I stopped drinking. And um, it wasn't until a couple of weeks later that I started to find out, you know? Saturday, 6 o'clock, I'm hit with this feeling. Whoa, whoa, what's going on? And I'm taking it out on the missus, you know, like, oh, being all narky and cranky, I'm shouting at the kids and all this sort of thing. I, you know, I want to kick the dog. I didn't kick the dog, but I wanted to. And, uh, and uh, I'm like, oh, this, this might be it. And I couldn't wait to see him in the next therapy session, you know. Uh, and uh, what I come to realize is like stopping drinking is what it is. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's hard. I'm, it is what it is. It's a journey. It's an ongoing journey, evidently. You know, we might be doing really well now, but that all it takes is a huge life event that shakes us up a little bit and we might not be. So drinking or not drinking is what it is, but the recovery bit, the bit that you recover from, the alcohol recovery, that's trying to pay attention to them uncomfortable feelings, them difficult emotions. That's the bit. That's the bit that will make or break people. If people want to white knuckle it and not drink, that is just an action. You drink or you don't drink, right? In, in theory. But the dealing with the emotions, the trigger, the reason why you drink, that is the bit that you need to focus on. And the great thing about alcohol is it is you reach to it and it does the trick. It stops you from thinking about it. It distracts yeah. you. It, yeah. it, it helps with that avoidance. But the thing about avoidance is if you are experiencing an emotion and you tell yourself you're not, 
you are lying to yourself. You are creating conflict. You are creating more difficulties and, and more, more painful emotion because you're denying yourself. You are experiencing that feeling if you like it or not. And I assume you probably don't like it, but tell it, avoiding it isn't going to help. <laughs> it's like that dripping tap that you ignore and eventually you have a flood. Yeah. You know, it ain't going to stop dripping. You have I've to got fix a theory it. about it, you know, like the iceberg. You only ever see a third above the water, right? Mm. Uh, and that's a big enough problem. Like it's two thirds underneath in the murky waters. You know, you don't know what's under there and, until you really dive down deep. Yeah. But I think when you give up drinking, you have to tread the water on the top because you, it's too much otherwise. It, you know, yeah. you can't just go, do you know what, I'm going to stop drinking, I'm going to get a therapist, I'm going to look at my childhood trauma all within a month. No, I'm going to become a vegetarian, I'm going to run a marathon and skydive as well. You really have to take this one day at a time thing, be mindful, relax into it, and seek support, help, connect with people, Uh, And do your very, very best, you know, because, you know, running before you can walk can be catastrophic, you know. Um, And I I I call it the second phase of sobriety is when you actually feel like you've learned, you've got the tools in your toolbox that serve you and you're then ready to maybe delve a little bit deeper. But I I still believe in professional therapist or Mm. coach that, that you trust and they know what they're talking about, you know. I mean, going alcohol-free is like being given the key to the room. You know, you, you unlock the room. But the, the recovery part is is learning how to be in the room, you know. Um, you can have the key, you can go in the room, but it will feel uncomfortable, it will feel unfamiliar, it will feel scary, it will cause anxiety, it may even trigger trauma. But the recovery part, which happens later, exactly as you say, is is the bit where you learn to be in the room. And, and I think that, like understanding that is is a must. You have to you have to realize that like and in the beginning, not drinking at the end of the day is it. You don't have to love your day. You don't have to be over the moon. You don't have to have all these amazing health benefits and clarity and weight loss and all that. No, 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 no. That's great if that happens. That's a bonus. What you need to accept at the end of the day is that you know what? I've put my head on the pillow and I didn't drink today. That's a win. Yeah. I hate, I hate life at the moment, but I didn't drink. And then eventually that dissipates and you get to a place where you don't hate life. And actually you start to think, well, what is next? Cause it's not just enough to get sober. You have to learn to love being sober too, that you put a quote up very similar to that the other day. It's like, you know, being sober is not a punishment or something like that. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. And I really resonate because it isn't when you choose to become sober, you're choosing a better life. However, it's like telling you that there's a paradise on the other, other side that informs. <laughs> And it's like, how, how do I get there? How do I get around the fawns? Now, nah, mate, you've got to go through the fawns. <laughs> you know, but when you get there, you could be good. You know? And the trouble is as well, uh, and it's human nature, that when we give up something that in essence we love because it's done the job, a lot yeah. of us drink to solve the problems in our head, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And when, when we give that, so again, the mistress is like, you know that you shouldn't do it and you cut the ties, but you miss them. And, 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 you know, the, the miss the good times and quite often you forget the bad times. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that's called drinking amnesia because you can go a year, two years and you can forget all the crap mornings, the arguments, how you felt, how you look and think, Oh, do you know what? I'd love a drink now. And you walk past a bar 
in the summer or the tables were at the front and everyone's yeah. knocking their heads back. <laughs> mm. And you and you're thinking, God, why can't that be me? Why can't I drink nor you know, go to the victim mentality instead yeah. of going, actually, they might have a normal relationship with alcohol, but there's a chance they may not. Uh, what yeah. we see is not often the case, you know. Okay. And then just remember, sometimes check in with yourself and remind yourself where you were back then, a year before, two years before, how yeah. your relationship was. Absolutely. You know? Remind yeah. yourself. And that then pushes you forward and you think, God, I'm so grateful that I'm not in that place anymore. You know, and it's like a recharge yeah. where, where you have to check in. Yeah. And, and you're right. You know, that feeling of walking past people enjoying themselves in a pub garden, that is an uncomfortable feeling, potentially resentment. And it's only then when we attach to that feeling and we think it into a problem, like you just said, exactly there where you go, oh, why can't I do this? Why can't look at how much fun they're having? Rare, rare, rare. Look, you just walked past the pub garden. You're sober now because you had a massive long relationship with alcohol. And when you walk past, you're going to have a feeling of resentment. You're going to have a strong feeling about it. That's probably never going to go away. Like when a smoker smells smoke, you know, they're still going to love it. Mm. And that's the thing. It's like these things aren't going to go away. So what we have to do is we have to learn to accept them. And acceptance doesn't mean you have to like it. It doesn't mean you have to, you have to really enjoy it and all that sort of stuff. Some people do, some people don't. It just means you have to accept it. And the wonderful thing about acceptance is if you're trying to accept, if you're working on accept, then that's the problem because acceptance isn't a doing word. <laughs> In fact, it is the literal essence of not doing yeah. <laughs> like there is no doing when it comes to accepting. It is just thinking, okay, like we do as coaches, when someone walks in the room and they want to talk to us, we deal with what we see in front of us. Yeah. We start where we are. And, and it's about that self-development in a nutshell to me, it's self-development starts first with accepting exactly where you are. And then if you want to make life better or you want to enhance it, that's okay. And it sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. What it means is it's like having the job that you love the most in the world, but you just want to get paid a bit more money for it. <laughs> you know, that's okay. You know, like yeah. you know, that's all right. You know, but I, I, I can't stress enough. And obviously we, we, we're here with a captive audience of, of people that are interested in either going alcohol free or are alcohol free. It is the difference maker. It's the game changer in your life. It will change everything eventually. And it might not feel like that at the beginning, mm. but it, it really will. I've taken myself from like, I shouldn't be where I am now. I live in a beautiful home in Cornwall. I've got a gorgeous wife and two lovely children. Johnny's lucky. No, not really. <laughs> Being honest, I worked really hard for it and I, and I suffered quite a lot over the time, but I've got here now and I shouldn't have that. I shouldn't have that with dyslexia and having no money when I was born. I shouldn't have that by having um, issues around race as a kid. I shouldn't have that for witnessing domestic violence and being uh, assaulted as a kid. The, the level of violence was un unreal. It was terrible. I shouldn't be where I am now, but I am. And this is the point. The point is that I used alcohol for a little while. And another thing another therapist said to me was congratulations for finding a way to stay alive, which mm -hmm. took the guilt away for drinking. I felt bad about it, but I needed that at the time. That's what I felt I needed. Yeah. That was that was my easy access to therapy. A coping mechanism. Yeah. yeah. That's uh, what it is. And for me, you should be where you are today. You do deserve it. You deserve a lovely wife, a lovely home and a beautiful family. Do you know what I mean? That's what I see. And I'm sure all the listeners agree after hearing you speak, you know, and, and we are what we attract as well. 
you know, and like what I say about M, she sees the true essence in me rather than the, the person that was necking three bottles of wine. And what she's understood since I've stopped drinking is actually there was a huge part of it that I couldn't help it. Uh, and that's the reality of it. She just saw me as, why do you drink? Why do you have to get drunk? Why this? Why that? Now she understands it. Uh, and that's brought us closer together. And now she speaks as the partner of publicly, you know, um, which I'm really, really encouraging now because when she had cancer, no one ever asked how I was. When I was drinking like I was, no one ever asked how she was. When I stopped drinking, I was the hero. I was the legend. You know, I was getting the pats on the back. No one asked how she was then or how she was affected by that. And I think it's such an important conversation for the partner to be recognised and almost like hell, do you know what I mean? And and say, look, I really, really appreciate you for, mm-hmm. for, for supporting me and, and still being here in my life and, and for, I don't know if putting up with the right word, really. It, it's like... Accepting it. Accepting me yeah. for who who you believed that I was rather than the person you saw in front of me, you know, yeah. just passing out on the sofa with my mouth open and and she used to will me to go to sleep so she could then relax and and as i said previously i, I was never one physically but i i would could say some cutting remarks you know like really cutting which in a way in itself is gaslighting uh, yeah. which i feel incredibly ashamed of but it was almost like I was that other person then that I, I didn't even know who I was, you know. Yeah, um, you've got to have that. You've got to have compassion for that, mate. You have yeah, to. absolutely. And, and I think, I think like you're right in what you say, like there's a huge grieving process that comes around stopping drinking alcohol. Firstly, for, for the person stopping, you know, that, that, that best friend, that mistress, that whatever is now not in your life and you grieve that. And I think it's so important that you, that anybody giving up alcohol for the first time, respects that grief because there is a grieving process and you do need to um you need to honor that process and grieve like you would as if you lost a, a real person yeah but there's also one for the partner too because now now what they've got is the most surreal situation they've still got their partner walking around this person that looks like them talks like them acts like them but they haven't because all of a sudden they're not drinking anymore and there's a huge part of your life together and separately yeah. that's now gone yeah. And that's hard, man. Yeah. That's really hard. And, yeah. and, and it is going to be times where she or he resent that person. Like, oh, I, w- I wish you could just drink like a normal person too. Yeah. You yeah. know, I really and, and, that. And, there's an- and there's another part of it too. Like, that's not what they signed up to. You know, she's now 20 years into a relationship with me. We used to go to- out to dinner and have wine. We used to go to festivals and drink beers and ciders. And now we don't do that anymore. That's not what she signed up for. However, she loves me and she's going to stick with me. But I need to appreciate that. As harsh as that is and as cutting as that is, that is true. Yeah. I am now different. I have now changed. And she is going to take a little while to adapt to that. And she's going to get things wrong. She might say things now and again that hurt my feelings. And I accept it because you know what? I did that for a really long time. (laughs) And if she accepts that, then I have to accept what I'm hearing right now. Some of this stuff is going to be hard to hear, but that's all part of it. You know, and this is life, isn't it? It comes with a degree of uncomfortability. And and if you're sitting there waiting for it to be comfortable and for things to be okay, 
you'll probably get to the end of your life and realize that that's never going to happen. <laughs> you know, this is life. The experience that is life, you know, is a hard one. Oh, mate, honestly, it, whenever I talk to you, I just feel all this emotion um, mm. inside of me. Goosebumps on the outside, but emotions. And if I met you now, right, I gave you a big hug. I wouldn't let you go. But not only I think you would cry, but I think I would cry too. Because yeah. I feel like we're so connected like that, that we, it brings up my stuff. It's bubbling inside me listening to you speak, you know, and I'm sure yeah. the listeners would agree, you know, it's just the way you, you put things out to the universe that we all relate to, you know, you've got a, a real natural gift and that comes through your life experience, but where your growth has come um, from that as well. And I'd really love to round this off with you telling us all where you are now in your life. I am living my purpose. And what that means is I have a set of trauma responses, right? And what I've done is I've taken those trauma responses and I've taken them from a curse and turned them into a superpower. And what that means is I suffer from hypervigilance. Uh, when I was young, I had to make sure my surroundings was okay so that everyone was safe and all those things. And that was because of a bad thing because I was getting hurt. But what I've done is I've realized now that my hypervigilance is not a curse. It's a gift. I notice my surroundings and it helps me find opportunities. The feeling of dread is actually excitement. Excitement and nervousness are the same emotion. It's only our perception of them that makes them what they are. Fear and paranoia. Thank you for keeping me safe. Uh, catastrophization, blimey. <laughs> uh, where is the evidence and what's the worst that can happen? Then what? Usually not as bad yeah. as what you think it's going to be. Yeah. My self-hatred. I remind myself that I'm a good person. And then uh, I think th that trauma, that, that, that stuff that stays with me, all of them trauma responses, they're now a superpower. They now enable me to help people. And that's where I'm living my purpose. I am living my purpose. I, for the first time in my life, that I feel like I'm in the best place to help anybody. When I was in lockdown, I sat, it's going to sound so pretentious. I don't even know if I should say this, but uh, we have a hot tub. <laughs> and I sat in my hot tub after watching the news, watching people suffering everywhere. And I thought, nah, 40 years old, that's it. If this is my life <clears throat> to the day that I die, I'm a very lucky man. My life's work now is to help as many people as I can realize what they can become. They're inside everybody, there is a super self and it is there already. You don't have to look for it. You don't have to, you don't have to find it. You don't have to create it. It's already there. You just need to get out of your own way. And there is a way to do that. And I can help with that. And that is what, that's why I'm living on a purpose and I love it. And I'm so grateful that I've managed to get through to this point that I get to sit on podcasts and talk to amazing people like you, as much as you're, you're kindly saying I inspire you. It makes me chuckle because you're the most inspiring man I've ever met. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just think it's a funny to me. It's just, it's funny to me. But um, at the same time, I accept that, you know, I accept that. Thank you for saying that. But um, you know, I get to hang out with people like you and I, you know, this year to, for me, I, I want to come and see you. I want to get up to London and, and catch up. Hey, um, I want to come to Cornwall. So I, <laughs> well, I we'll, talk, Cornwall. We'll, we'll talk about that then. That's good. I like that. <laughs>
<laughs> I never get to get, I never get to go anywhere. <laughs> oh, bless. Well, we do both. We make yeah, it a, yeah. a round trip. <laughs> Johnny, honestly, mate, uh, you're just amazing, amazing human being, and uh, I can't wait to meet your wife. Mm. I can't even get it out. I feel emotional. <laughs> I can't wait to meet your wife as well and your family. I'm going to put all your details in the show notes so people know where to find you. Thank you, mate. And I believe that. We're going to be doing things in the future because I think, you know, talking to you, it's just aligned with everything I feel about my life as well. You know, I, I, I've come near death a few times through my drinking uh, and come out the other side and ripped the blinkers off and, and seen a beautiful world out there, you know, by removing one thing in my life, which is alcohol. You know, it's as simple as that. Yeah. And that has changed everything. It's changed my marriage, my relationship with the family. I've met so many amazing people as well, like yourself. And, and it does. And I think when people hear this, they will feel encouraged to actually even just think about their relationship with alcohol and think, do you know what? Anything's possible, you know, and it can start with day one of just thinking, right, just for today, I'm not going to drink. And then tomorrow, just see how you feel. Yeah, it can be that easy. You know, not difficult. Changing your relationship with alcohol will change your relationship with yourself. It will allow you to get to know yourself and eventually learn to respect yourself, which is what's missing. Yeah, you know? always, mate. Yeah. Always. And you'll be out to look in the mirror one day and say, do you know what? I really like you. <laughs> do you know what? Do you know what I try to encourage before we cut this down is, is, uh, is curiosity. You know, I, I remember something happened once where I saw my wife look in the mirror and she was judging herself, you know, doesn't like this, doesn't like that. She wished this was different, wished that was different. And then a few seconds later, my son walks up to the mirror and he looks at the mirror and he shakes the mirror. He licks the mirror. He puts his hands on the mirror. And I thought, that's what's missing from us as grown-ups, man. Curiosity. Yeah. Instead of, instead of judging ourselves, we just yeah. want to be curious, man. Just Let's just start being curious again, you know? Yeah, you're right. You're so right, mate, honestly. Johnny, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. And let's get that booked in. Yeah, mate. Can't wait. Uh, Thank you so much. Pleasure, mate. It's all mine. See you soon, mate. Bye, man. Take care. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of One for the Road. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can now download my app, Sober Dave on the Apple and Google Play Store and on there you will find lots of tutorials, tips and support to help you stop drinking and there are also meditation audios, food plans and chat forums you can also find me on Instagram at Sober Dave please remember to join me for next week's episode but until then thanks for listening and have a great week